Father, your word tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You knew what you were doing, and we know that includes our emotions. For many of us, they can be a source of uh, frustration and confusion a lot of the time, but we want to grow in our ability to understand ourselves and to glorify you with all of ourselves, including our emotions. So I pray that you'll help us, give us uh, clarity in our thinking and our understanding, and uh, help us to grow more like your son, Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. This is the second in our series, which we're calling, How Do You Feel? Making Sense of Our Emotions. Last time we started looking at five truths that help us begin to understand our emotions in a general way, not focusing in too much on any particular emotion. And we looked last time at just the first two of those truths. We saw that emotions are good. That doesn't mean they always feel good. It means they are a good gift from God. In fact, they're part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Our emotions are a reflection of His. We saw some evidence of that just this morning in the book of Jeremiah. The pain Jeremiah felt at being betrayed, we saw that was a reflection in a very pale sense, but still a reflection of God's pain at being betrayed. And last time we looked at the perfect emotional life. We saw from the Gospels how Jesus displayed the full range of emotions. So we know all emotions, even the negative ones, have a proper place in our lives. Holiness does not mean shedding our emotions. Then we saw last time that emotions are complicated. We said we can think of our emotions like streams of different colored paint all flowing into a bucket at the same time. That's how we tend to experience emotions. They don't usually come one at a time. And that can make it complicated to even describe the emotions we're feeling. Because we often are experiencing a mixture of several different emotions at the same time. Another thing that makes them complicated is that they are disordered by sin. Jesus always felt appropriate emotions in every situation, but you and I often do not. We can feel the wrong emotions at the wrong time. So maybe <clears throat> feeling bitter about someone else's success, but we can also feel the right emotions, but feel them to the wrong degree. Like, for example, when a failure or a disappointment totally floors us. That's where we got to last time. Today we're going to finish this list of five truths that help us understand our emotions. They're good, they're complicated, and number three, they are powerful. Maybe you recognize that photo. If you've seen it before, you'll realize actually it's a very disturbing photo. This was a three-year-old Syrian boy. He was a migrant who was washed up dead on a beach. And for a while before that photo was taken, I think it was 2015, there was a real crisis going on. People were fleeing the Middle East in overwhelming numbers. 
and lots of reports and articles had been written to try and highlight the situation, but they weren't really getting a response. But the day this picture was released, everything changed. The public switched on to the situation and governments altered their policies. What caused that? It was an emotional response. The articles full of facts and figures were all aimed at people's thinking and they made very little impact. But the photo got people emotionally and things changed almost overnight. And we might wonder, well, is it a bad thing that our emotions are powerful? No, it's not a bad thing. It's how God made us. We saw last time our emotions have been disordered by sin, but it was always God's intention that emotions would be a powerful factor in our lives. They're designed to direct us and motivate us to action. In fact, without the motivating power of emotions, we could not live the Christian life. Matthew Elliott says, emotion is the only motivation that is able to propel us toward a radically obedient life. Effective, long-term discipline is driven by passion. The love of something propels you through the sweat, the practice, the work. We are strong enough to run the race when our emotions drive us to the finish line. Emotions not only power us to greater discipline and achievements, Passion also produces in us the commitment to help others, sometimes at great cost to ourselves. No one runs a marathon because they read an article telling them it was a good thing to do. Reading an article might get you through a couple of weeks of light training, but to go beyond that, you need a strong desire. You need to want to finish a marathon. Nobody climbs Mount Everest because their husband bought them a pair of hiking boots. People climb Everest because they have a burning desire to do it. So Matthew Elliott goes on. Without passion, our lives become dependent on sheer will, the mental grit to persevere. A life that is an endless effort of sheer will is a life of drudgery, tedium. No wonder we get burned out. No wonder we become spiritually dead. Our output is only as good as our passion for the thing we are focused on doing. Now, we can survive on sheer will and mental grit for a while. There will be times when we have to keep going like that. But it's hard to go for long without a passion for what we're doing. And it's certainly not the ideal. Think about Jesus. Did Jesus go to the cross just because he knew intellectually it was an important thing for him to do so people could be saved? Was Jesus emotionally detached from his great work? No, without a great motivating love, Jesus would never have chosen the cross. First of all, a love for his Father 
a genuine, powerful desire to do his Father's will, and secondly, a genuine love for condemned human beings, and thirdly, a longing for the glory on the other side of the cross. The book of Hebrews says about Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy of pleasing his Father, the joy of having saved a people for his Father, the joy of returning to reign at his Father's side. So it was at least in part because of his powerful emotional engagement that Jesus was able to go through the humiliation and the agony of the cross. And if you and I are going to follow Jesus, it's important we are emotionally engaged in following him. Without that emotional engagement, we simply won't follow through with obeying his commands, with resisting temptation, and making sacrifices to serve him. Now, that does not mean all of us are going to be emotionally expressive people. A lot of that is just down to personality. We are not all going to be emotionally expressive. But there has to be a sense in which we feel these realities we believe in. In some degree, they have to move us emotionally. So the power of emotions is an important thing. We need them to be powerful. The problem is, because they're powerful, we can easily end up being ruled by our emotions. And that is not good. A writer called Catherine Haddo explains why it's not good. We are so easily led to believe that how we feel explains the reality of a situation. We believe that because we feel bad, the situation must be bad. Conversely, we feel good and therefore conclude that the situation must be good. But the reality is that because of the fall, in other words, because of sin, we think the wrong things, we do the wrong things, we desire the wrong things, and we also feel the wrong things. Because our emotions are disordered by sin, they can motivate us in unhelpful ways. Maybe, for example, they can motivate us to doggedly pursue revenge on someone who's wronged us because we feel we need to get even with the person. Our, emotion, our emotions can motivate us to make our decisions based just on what feels right. So we can end up jumping into situations that we should actually avoid. And we can walk away from situations because they no longer feel right, even though it might be a situation we should actually stick with. Being ruled by our emotions can lead us to make tragically wrong decisions. And if we let our emotions rule, we're vulnerable also to being manipulated by people who play on our emotions to get what they want out of us. And so we have to realize emotions are not the only thing. As important as it is to feel, we also need to use our minds. We need to reason things out. Above all, we need to listen to Scripture. 
and commit to obeying it whether we feel like it or not. We heard earlier from Matthew Elliott about the importance of our emotions for motivating us in the Christian life. But he goes on to explain that is only half the picture. When emotion is king, what we believe can too easily be diminished into something of low importance. We tend to think that we can just follow our hearts against all facts to the contrary. Sometimes people say things like, your passions will lead you where you really belong. For some, they need to find emotional peace by knowing they are in the center of God's will is more important than following God's simple moral commands. As if we could please God with a passionate heart, yet live however we want. We looked last time at Jesus' emotional life and we saw it was rich and full. Jesus was motivated by emotion, but he was not ruled by it. And we can see that in the way he dealt with people. Glenn Harrison says, over and over again in his personal encounters, Jesus integrated compassion for the individual with uncompromising obedience to God's word. So, for example, when a rich man came to see Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're told that Jesus' emotions quickly came alive in that situation. Mark tells us Jesus looked at the rich man and loved him. Jesus was not detached from the man and from his situation. He wasn't cold and clinical. He had a genuine affection for him. But Jesus also did not hesitate to tell him, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. So Jesus' emotional connection with the man didn't prevent him from doing the hard thing, which was to tell the man he needed to get rid of his idol, his money. If Jesus had been ruled by his emotions in that situation, he might have said, look, you're a nice guy. You just told me you've kept the commandments since you were a boy, and that's great. You'll be okay. Come and have dinner with me. Because Jesus was not ruled by his emotions, he was willing to tell the man the hard thing. He told him the truth. That he would not be okay unless he tore himself away from his idol. And Jesus then had to watch as that man he loved walked away. And you and I also have to resist letting our emotions rule. But we find that difficult, and I think we find it difficult mainly for two reasons. First of all, we find it difficult because our culture is constantly telling us our emotions should rule. I'm going to give you a pretty long quotation, but I think it's helpful. Winston Smith says, The loudest voice in the room, at least in the Western world, tells us that our emotions are everything. The most important thing. The thing that defines us. What you feel is the most important thing about you. The highest good our culture seeks for living, breathing individuals is having good feelings. So, the greatest harm you can do to someone is not to listen to, give space for, and affirm what the individual feels is needed to feel the way he or she wants to feel. 
If the most important thing about you is your feelings, then you need to be and express yourself at pretty much all costs. This is why we value getting it off your chest, letting off steam, just being honest, saying what you feel, and so on. Feelings are important. But to place your feelings ahead of the quality of your character, ahead of the faithfulness of your obedience to God, ahead of the depth of your relationship with God and others, that is the opposite of what Scripture calls us to. You are more than what you feel. This issue is not purely a secular problem. The church has its own versions of this broader cultural value. Often, for example, we elevate our emotional experience to the peak of Sunday morning worship. The goal of the sermon is to feel deeply convicted or inspired. The goal of the music is to feel a rush of ecstasy or thanksgiving. The goal of the coffee hour is to feel connected and included. This mentality often drives personal devotions as well. The point is to have a dramatic emotional experience of seeing Jesus' beauty or to have less anxiety or to feel closer to God. He concludes by saying, we ought to earnestly seek experiences of God through his word and his people and rejoice when sermons or songs move our hearts. But it's so easy for a healthy appreciation of emotion in our spiritual experience to slide over into an unhealthy emotional ism that begins to make the emotion itself the point. That's crucial. Emotions are important, but emotions themselves are not the point. God is more interested in the quality of our character, our obedience to him, and the depth of our relationships. And emotions can help us develop character. They can help us pursue obedience. They can help us deepen our relationships by enabling us to connect with other people, to enter into their situation, But emotions are not the main thing. We are more than what we feel. So we must not let our emotions rule. And we must not spend our lives chasing emotional highs and trying to escape emotional lows. But that is difficult for us. First of all, because our culture says emotions should rule. And secondly, it's difficult because... We tend to feel fast and think slow. If you do something that exasperates or infuriates me, my feelings will come fast. In fact, the words I just used are emotion words. Exasperate and infuriate. The emotions are on the scene in an instant. They're the first thing to kick in. You do something, and I don't have to decide what my emotions are going to be. They're already there. We feel fast and think slow. So it takes real effort to stop and think before I respond to you. It's very easy to just give way and let my emotions rule in the situation. It takes no effort for me to do that. And if we go back to the photo we saw earlier... 
when you and I see something like that and when we realize what it is we're actually looking at, our emotions come fast. They tell us something needs to be done. And they're right. But unless we also force ourselves to think carefully about the best thing to do, we might end up making the situation even worse. Governments often do that. Something happens, the public shouts, do something now, and the government does, only to realize later we should have thought it through a bit more carefully. Because of our knee-jerk response, we've now got a worse problem in our hands. Maybe you've had a situation in your life where your emotions welled up and you made some commitment about what you were going to do, only to realize later, I can't actually do that, or I'm not truly prepared to pay the price of doing that. And you ended up then backing out of your commitment. So it's great to let our emotions prompt us to get involved. But we also need to make a plan and we need to count the cost of getting involved. A writer called Jonathan Haidt says we can picture the relationship of our thoughts and our feelings like this. A man riding an elephant. The man represents the rational, logical side of us. The side of us that thinks things through. And the elephant represents our emotional, instinctive side. The side that feels. And they're both important. Unless the elephant moves, the man isn't going to get very far. And he will not accomplish very much. Because the elephant has more power to accomplish things. The elephant can do much more than the man can do by himself. And the point of the illustration is we need to be emotionally involved in what's going on. We saw that earlier. Emotions are powerful and they can motivate us to accomplish things. And at the same time, unless the man does some work to guide the elephant, they're going to be in trouble. Remember what we said about feeling fast and thinking slow. If the elephant gets startled and decides to run, so maybe a gun goes off or he sees a lion in the corner of his vision, the elephant might already be moving before the man realizes what's going on. It will take effort to slow the elephant down and make sure if they need to move, they move in the right direction, not right into the middle of even worse trouble. And the point of that illustration is, if we let our emotions rule the day, we're often going to end up in a ditch somewhere. We'll end up in messy situations that could have been avoided if we just paused and put our thinking caps on. So thinking of that combined illustration, we can say this. God made us emotional and rational beings. The two go hand in hand. They support, define, and clarify each other. Emotion and reason together are what make us complete and make our lives full. Graham Bynan says, feelings take their place as part of a whole response to God. 
They're not the whole response themselves. They take their place in a life informed by God's word through our minds and flowing out into a life lived for God in practice. And so as we look at this, some of us here may realize we've been undervaluing the place of emotion in our lives. If that's the case, we need to appreciate the part emotion can play in enriching our obedience. The ideal Christian life is not a bare effort of the will. Ideally, our obedience should flow out of a genuine passion for God. Certainly, if we had to choose, I think, between joyful, eager obedience and dry, dutiful obedience, wouldn't we want the joy and the eagerness? So let's ask God to develop those emotions in us so that, what we, so that we love to do what we ought to do. We love to do what's right. But others of us, may realize we've been overvaluing emotions. That we have actually been living for emotional highs and letting emotions rule. If so, we need to appreciate the importance of careful thinking that's informed by God's word. And the importance of doing the right thing even when we don't feel like it. The final truth we're going to consider is the truth that our emotions are mirrors of the heart. They reveal what our heart is fixed on, what's most important to us. Emotions are expressions of our heart's desire. There's a famous biblical illustration of that. 1 Kings chapter 3 tells us about two prostitutes who came to see King Solomon. The first lady said to Solomon, the two of us live in the same house. We both had babies. Hers died in the night, and she swapped it with mine while I was asleep. The second lady said, uh-uh, the living child is mine. How was Solomon going to solve that? No one else had been there. It was just one lady's word against the other. Solomon knew he needed to get behind the ladies' words and see into their hearts. And to do that, he called for a sword and he said, cut the living child in two and give them half each. And that prompted both of the ladies to reveal their hearts. The lady whose child had already died showed that by her lack of concern for the living child. She said to Solomon, go ahead and cut him up. Neither of us will have him. The true mother of the child said, give the living child to the other lady. Don't kill him. Matthew Elliott says, we get the most emotional about the things that mean the most to us. Our emotions are a reflection of our priorities. What's really important to us. And that holds true for our negative emotions as well as our positive ones. When you get what you love, you're happy. When someone else gets it, you're envious. When someone deprives you of it, you get mad. When you lose it, you grieve. 
our feelings express our intuitive view of how well our situation is providing for and protecting what we love. What you care about shapes what you feel. Your emotions are always expressing the things you love, value, and treasure, whether you understand them or not. I'll give you a simple example. When I was 14 or 15, I went with my parents to visit some friends of theirs, and they had told me in advance that their friend's son, who was in his 20s, was a bit wild. So when we got there, and he announced he was taking me out for a drive in his car, I started to feel a bit uncomfortable. And then when he started hurtling me round narrow country roads at high speed, my unease went up a few notches pretty quickly. Then, when he started boasting about how many times he'd crashed his car in the ditches we were passing, I was so petrified I couldn't even speak. My emotions during that car trip revealed the greatest desire of my heart, which was to stay alive. Taking some other examples, if my desire is to be in control and I feel that I'm losing control, that will show in my emotions as I get angry or panicky and as I start snapping at people. If my desire is to be well thought of by others, then when someone pays me a compliment, I will hang on that person's every word. My heart will soar as I drink in the praise that I've been craving. On the other hand, if someone criticizes me, I get defensive and I might be devastated by that criticism for days afterwards. And if we turn it around, if I do not care about something, that will show too. So if I lose my job and I'm able to just shrug my shoulders and not get bothered about it, that probably doesn't mean I'm super spiritual and able to rise above adversity. It's more likely to mean I didn't really care about my job in the first place. And so I can take the loss of it in my stride because it was never truly important to me. If you and I start paying attention to our emotions, we can begin to see what it is that our heart values. And by our heart, I mean the real us, the core of who we are. What we value at the very center of our beings is going to be displayed in our emotions. And Catherine Haddo says this explains how two people can respond to the same situation very differently because they have hearts governed by differing desires. So think back to those two prostitutes who came to King Solomon. They were both, both faced with exactly the same situation. The prospect of a live baby being cut in two with a sword. But one of them responded with indifference and the other with powerful passion. And the reason was their hearts were governed by differing desires. One lady wanted to save her child. 
The other lady, well, she just wanted some consolation for having lost her child. And she didn't really care whether that consolation came through gaining another child or seeing her housemate also lose her child. So when Solomon proposed killing the child, she thought, fair enough, I've lost my child and now she'll lose hers, we'll be even. I'll get what I want. Two people responding to the same situation very differently because their hearts were governed by differing desires. And obviously there are degrees of this. There are degrees of emotional reaction depending on how much we value something. It's not all or nothing. If you reverse your car over my phone, I'll be frustrated, but I'll get over it probably within 30 seconds. If you reverse over my cat, I will be sad. I admit it. I might even cry about it, believe it or not. None of you would. Megan wouldn't. I would. But if you reverse your car over a person who is dear to me, my emotional reaction will be on a whole other level because that person means so much more to me. So if you and I pay attention not only to what emotions we feel, but also to the strength of the emotions we feel, we can begin to get a sense both of what things we value and how much we value them. So just take a moment to think about your emotions over the last week. You're not going to remember everything that you felt, but was there something last week that really got you going in a particular way? Maybe positively, maybe negatively. You either got very happy or angry or sad or desperate. Try to pinpoint something in the last week. Just reflect over that for a second or two. And then ask yourself, does that situation tell you anything about what is valuable to you? Does it tell you how much that thing is valuable to you? If you couldn't think of anything right now, try it later when you go home or think of the week ahead with that in mind and try to spot things as they come along. Just think about it a little bit. And at this point, I'm not asking whether you should be valuing whatever it is you value. We can think about that next time. At the moment, what we want to begin to do is just learn to read our emotions a little bit and then try to interpret them a little bit. We don't always realize what's most important to us. The answer we would give someone if we're asked is maybe not what actually is important. But we can begin to discover what's most important by paying attention to our emotions and then tracing those back to find out what our hearts love and value. The book of Proverbs says the springs of life flow from our hearts. And Graham Bynan explains what that means. Just as any bit of a river or stream that you can point to has all flowed from its spring, so all our life flows from our hearts. 
We live the lives we do, and we have the emotions that we feel because of the hearts that we have. And that means if we can sense our emotions are not the way they should be, if we find ourselves being happy about things we shouldn't, like other people's losses or failures, or if we find ourselves feeling upset at things we shouldn't, like other people's successes, or if we feel anger overwhelming us when things don't go our way, there is a way we can work to change those emotions. And it's not by counting to ten before we speak. That might be helpful in the very short term. Nor is the answer to train ourselves to act happy when others succeed or to act sad when they have a setback. That's not true change. The only way to truly change our emotions is by working to reshape our hearts. Because we know our emotions flow out of our hearts. So if our hearts change, our emotions will change too. As our hearts become properly focused and ordered, our emotions will begin to be properly ordered too. And that's what we're going to begin thinking about next time. How we can begin to reorder and retune our hearts so that we nurture and develop godly emotions in our lives. That's all I've planned to say today, but it may have raised some questions.